and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. I'm your host, Brett Kane, and uh, you're tuning in the day before Thanksgiving, or uh, the day after, or, you know, the week or month or year after. Uh, either way, you found yourself here and now, and I appreciate you showing up. Today we have a wonderful episode that is very dear to my heart and important to hear. Um, so this is actually introducing a new pillar to the show that we've kind of touched up on in prior episodes, but not as fully direct, um, and that is uh, social activism and making sure that we're aware with the happenings of our society and what's happening in other communities that may not be our neighbors, but are close enough to be warrant for concern. Um, today we're sitting down with Jose, who I have known for a handful of years now and am now just starting to really realize the immense power that this human has. Uh, Jose is a, a documentarian uh, journalist. He's a videographer. Um, and he's currently making a documentary uh, called Citizen, the Hilmer Ramos Gomez story, which is about a United States citizen, uh, veteran at that, who actually was arrested and threatened to be deported from the agents over at ICE. And there is a lot to this story that um, I can't really touch up on in this intro. And we really just touched the surface in this episode. I didn't want to take away from the power of the actual story he's creating, but I wanted to use it as a means to have a conversation about an aspect of American society that is frankly very important and should be on everybody's radar. It's definitely brought up a lot in the news, but it's always kind of from a news perspective, which is something we even get on in this. And I really want to be able to utilize this platform to give the mic to people who are experiencing different things. And you might be telling yourself, yo, this is a wellness podcast. Why are we starting to get into the social activism thing? Um, and for me, that's because um, to take care of yourself, you have to be open to the world. You have to be open to communities and the suffering of the world. And frankly, that's my biggest prerogative with this show is we build a sense of wellness so that we can show up more completely in the world. Uh, so what that means is that we have to bear witness and we have to feel what's happening in our country and in our world. Um, and that starts internally, but then it goes to your immediate neighbors and then it expands to your community. Then it expands to the communities next to you that you may be brushing shoulders with. And, you know, this is a, it's a ever widening circle. But in order to do that, we have to listen. We have to be able to actually create room in our lives to have a compassionate space for other humans. And that's, I mean, it's hand in hand with having compassion for ourselves. So this is important work and I'm going to die on this hill if I have to. Um, like I said, uh, there's going to be a lot of topics that this show covers, but this is going to be an ever-present theme because I think it's important to keep all of the the wellness practices rooted in a very social forward um, space. I, I just think it's, if you have one without the other, then it's kind of spiritual bypassing. And I really don't want to make this a conducive space to spiritually bypass things or to physically bypass things. I, I want to keep that heart space open. And um, this is a, it's a really engaging conversation. I learned a lot and I feel bad that I had to even end it when I did, because I could have gone for another hour and I know he could have too, but I had other obligations that I had to attend to. So uh, let me know if this is something you uh, 
have enjoyed or want to elaborate on or want to correct me on or just if you want to communicate with me please by all means uh shoot me a spell over at the uh, facebook page um there's going to be an email that i'm going to be rolling out in the next couple weeks here where i can have more direct feedback but um i've gotten a few messages on facebook and you know it's been really helpful um as always if you are listening on apple podcast it does a huge help to give this show a five-star rating um that's not just for me to pat myself on the back but it's actually to get the show to more listeners and to help me get um more accredited guests potential sponsorships it is the single biggest metric that can actually help me invest more time into this, make a more quality show, show up even more, which is something I want to do. This is going to be a part of my livelihood. This is going to be part of my offering to the world, uh, as well as my, um, uh, my client centered practice, uh, in the flesh. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. Um, Yeah, I don't want to take up too much time because this conversation is super crucial. So without further ado, please welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, Jose Guadalupe Jimenez Jr. Jose, hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. How's it going? Good, man. I'm doing well. How are you today? Good, man. Good. Yeah, I'm glad to be able to reconnect with you. It was, um, it's been a pretty wild road since we first met. You know, I uh, had no idea. You know, we sat down at the Founders Brewing interview. <laughs> I just like had no idea who you were, or what was going on, and now here we are, uh, three, four years later. Almost. Is it four years? I think. It, Is it, uh, I think it's going on four years. It's going on four years. Yeah. Dude, that was crazy, man. I, I just recently moved from LA at that time, and. I had like no idea. I like quit my job in LA, like my career essentially, and just like started all over here in Michigan. So that yeah. was that was pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah. What were you What were you doing in LA? Uh, I was working for a documentary film producer. His name was uh, Peter Jones, and he did like feature documentaries. He did a feature documentary on uh, Johnny Carson. Um, it was called Johnny Carson King and Late Night. No, like this guy was amazing. This guy. This guy was an Emmy award-winning, Peabody award-winning documentary filmmaker, and I was uh, I did a show called Angelino, which was a doc series for PBS with him. So I produced, shot, and edited that series. I did a short film with him called Dreamer. Um, it was about a Native American uh, veteran who uh, was struggling with survivor's guilt after the Vietnam War, and he like had his own barber shop in L.A. So yeah, I was definitely doing uh, documentary filmmaking like before I moved from uh, LA to Michigan. Wow. When did that uh, that seed first get planted in your in your life? Like when did you know that film was the way you wanted to move through life? Definitely high school. And it's funny that my my um, my my film appreciation teacher is from Michigan, which is actually kind of funny. Whoa. He he's from uh, outside Detroit. His name is Mr. Russ. And yeah, we had a film appreciation class. And, you know, and I, I could tell that he loved it. You know, he, he was a film geek then and still is now. And I think he'd be okay with me calling him that. Yeah. He, he, he was also the drama and theater teacher at my high school. Um, but one of um, our final project was uh, to make our own film. And I, I made a 20-minute 20 film on, on a Sony PC, Sony Movie Maker. It was called El Inmigrante. 
which was a, a modern Western about this undocumented immigrant that wanted to get revenge on this gangster that killed his girlfriend at a club in Tijuana. So he had to cross the border illegally and hunt down this guy that killed his girlfriend at a club. Oh my God, that sounds actually oh really God. cool. It was it was a big production, man. It, like yeah. uh, I even convinced my parents to drive me to Mexico to Tijuana, <laughs> and, and I remember my one of my best friends. His name was Tony. He was such a stonehead. The dumbass brought like weed back then in his like in my parents' car oh as we're crossing God. the border, oh and like I had literally like Tony, you have to flush that shit in the toilet right now. I'll oh pay God. you back. I don't yeah. care. But like we're, you can't bring weed into Mexico, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, my parents don't know about it and so yeah we, we went to mexico we filmed it we went to like my family's ranch where they had a fence and we pretended that was the border had my friend tony hop that and then oh god uh, it was i can't believe it was 20 minutes it was a 20 minute long short film i hope i can find it actually i was just about to say i hope that that's like on public domain right now oh that, god honestly... i hope so it's yeah. somewhere. It's somewhere in my uh, my parents' closet of thousands of VHS tapes. Oh, it's on VHS yeah. too. Yes. Nice. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So, high school. This started, and then you were working with documentary filmmakers, and then you took a break. I'm assuming when you came to Michigan. Why did you decide to come to Michigan? Um, lots of reasons. Um, LA is expensive, dude. I mean, yeah. that was that was a big reason. It felt like I was finally like doing my dream job of doing documentary filmmaking. Like be before that series, I um, wrote, produced, shot, edited, edited, and directed a, a doc series for Fox Sports Whoa. Uh, in Spanish for Fox Deportes. It was called uh, Futures and Legends. So we followed. I mean, this. I mean, I my my inspirations like HBO and those type of sports documentaries like twenty four seven. So like doing that was. My dream job. The only problem was like, it was I was doing them for, for like pennies on the dollar, you know. Whoa. But it it was like a really good learning school. But I I mean, I I had to like budget a whole half hour, national television show for five thousand yeah. dollars, and that included like finding money to pay myself, you know, audio mixers, you know, additional camera people. You know, travel. I mean, like, I traveled. criminal that they didn't it, it expect that from you. Like, what the heck? It, it absolutely was. But you know what? I got to, I mean, I'm, I got to hang out and eat lunch with this guy named Claudio Suarez. Which is essentially, like, I put him at the same level of famous uh, celebrity level as Michael Jordan in Mexico. Whoa. I mean, like, I got to, I got to climb the Pyramid of the Sun with him. Whoa. You know, like, how, how fucking cool is that? You yeah. Know? I got to uh, interview like um, like Mex like heroes like Oscar de la Hoya. It was like very important to me, like Mexican American in LA. I got to um, I, and, and an amazing part of like I like made friends with some of these guys. You know, like I, I still have some of their cell phones. Like I like, <laughs> like I hit them up for favors. Definitely yeah. uh, only when it, when it's definitely not, like when I definitely need it. You know, but it was really cool. I was able to I think they saw that passion that I had for it, and they knew I wasn't getting paid much, so they were like. You know, I really was able to, you know, really get to know them. And I never took selfies with them, too, which I think actually helped. Which I kind of regret now, because, like, people don't, might not remember, like, yeah. believe me. But yeah, yeah, I yeah. think they really respected that. I, 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 like, really try to, like, get to know them and not be, like, a fan. Yeah, and I think that that's important, too, because, like, a lot of these people interact with fans 
so often that that's like their primary interaction where it's like, yeah. you know, I just want a friend to like share yeah. life with and not like have this guy looking up to me while we're drinking right. beers. And, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember very vividly like in, in Mexico City trying hard not to freak the F out because I was having dinner with this guy, Claudio Suarez, and this other Mexican legend, his name is Alberto Aspe, who's known to be like very like um, curt and kind of rude and like he was he, even on like the soccer field he was like that kind of guy like just a really uh, forward candid guy um and so i was having dinner with them and i'm like oh, what the fuck's going on like i'm having dinner with these guys like it, it, it was an absolutely dream job i mean yeah. didn't get didn't pay the best but you know it was definitely like where i got my master's of yeah. filmmaking of documentary yeah. filmmaking you know Especially as you're like coming up, you know, I'm sure that that equipped you with the confidence that it took to like go forward and to start your own thing, which you're doing now. But yeah. I'm sure at those dinners, you know, you're probably going off into the bathroom and hyperventilating into a bag. <laughs> Practically, dude. I mean, yeah. like yeah. every night in the hotel room when I'm like get, getting my gear ready and I'm like, holy shit. Like, to, yeah. but, but it was a, like, it was a good, I was confident. Like, no, I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, it, it's a win-win, you know, like, so it, I didn't really see any negative part of that or I didn't feel like incapable of doing it. Right. Yeah. 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 That confidence. I mean, that even came off when we were doing the founders work, you know, I mean, I feel like whatever role that you found yourself in, you had that level of like professionality to it. And I mean, I saw you like rise through the ranks, you know, pretty quick. I was like, I think you were like one of the first people to get promoted to server when like that first batch i was like oh yeah Dude, no that actually makes sense <laughs> i was very proud of that actually like one of like i i i mean you i mean you, you we, i can be honest i hated being a server back i mean it's a hard yeah, job it dude. is yeah it's such a hard a props to those guys. i mean i don't mean to be this a psa to this like service industry but absolutely tip your servers and yeah. people because you, it's it's one of the hardest jobs I've had to do, and yeah. and honestly, like bar, like bar backing, they don't get enough credit just because they literally keep the place running. <laughs> like they do, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you got, literally keep the place. If you if you if your bar back's not on point, like you're not gonna have a glass. You're not gonna have yeah. tables. Aren't gonna. Get, I mean, it really it's it's a foundation to any like restaurant. So. Yeah. It's such a small barbacks. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a small window of like what a successful barback is too cuz like if they're even like 30 seconds to a minute oh. behind, then like everybody oh. gets thrown yep. off and like you know it. So oh, yeah. it kind of sucks, you know, in that culture that like there is like a lack of appreciation cuz a it's hard work and like b like the amount of emotional fortitude you need oh. to stay up every yep. night, day in, day out. It's it it's a work of art, honestly. And, and just, <coughs> excuse me, and just physically, you know, like you're, you're putting in like five miles of walking yeah, on a yep, shift, yep. dude, like, oh, yeah. and you're just get home and you know, you want to get your shifty, but you're like, I'm too fucking tired. <laughs> like, yeah, I just want to yeah. go home because guess what? You have to open the next morning too, even though yeah, you closed at, yeah. you, if you got, if you finish your shift at 3 a.m., great. You have to be there at 6.30 to get the beer ready to like go, you yeah. know? Yeah, so yeah, all no, the beer you help sell and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I definitely learned that work ethic though, like after high school, like uh my instead of going to like this senior trip, my dad made me go to work with him. 
And my dad worked at a, a produce distributing company, like a warehouse that delivers, like kind of like Gordon Foods type of place. Yeah. And I remember like thinking I was a hotshot, I'm a boss's son, like I can get away with everything. And I remember this dude, this uh, guy that was from Mexico City. I remember him, he, he, was, he was like 4'10", dude, I swear. 4'10", uh, mustache, really short, but really strong guy. And I was just kind of slacking off and he just literally like, he put in Spanish, he goes like, dude, you're fucking with my job. Like you need to get your shit together or I'm gonna tell your dad to like move somewhere else because you're affecting my work. Whoa. And like that really just kind of like, fuck. Like yeah. there's, like this is, this, this work's important, you know, people depend on this work and it kind of like we're really like, it's a reason why the stories I tell usually kind of are themed about immigration and, and because it's kind of what I know and it's the, the stories I want to tell. There's honestly so many like beautiful stories of like genuine hard work and like true sacrifice that I think like when we don't really have many voices in like the mainstream culture to actually like represent, but like I, I don't know the exact number, but there's millions of people who are in this position that like don't have the same like soapbox that you know a lot of other community members have. So I guess as a good transition is how did you? Did, when you came to Michigan, did you have a plan? Like, where did Candor Media come from? Like, you, you came to Michigan, and was this something that you've kind of known that you've wanted to do? So, um, during the Flint water crisis, when we, like, um, like everybody knew about the Flint water crisis in L.A., it's all we heard about in the news. There was one story in particular that I, I read in the L.A. Times. I believe it was the L.A. Times. It was about how the undocumented community in Michigan uh, in Flint specifically, like, didn't have, like, um, there's no Spanish television in Michigan. There, there's no, like, open-air free TV in Spanish in Michigan. There might be some now, but back then there was none. So there's no, like, their big networks are called Univision or Telemundo. There's none of that for free in Michigan. So there was family, uh, people, community that... You know, when he spoke Spanish, they had no idea that their water had lead. Whoa. No idea. Oh. And so they found out from family members in Los Angeles that would call them like, hey, I'm seeing the news over here that your water has lead. Where'd you, what, what? Like, yeah, it's all over the news. Like, and they had no idea. Whoa. And, and then to add on top of that, like I learned from living here that uh, during that time, you know, ice was actually going door to door and pretending to drop off water at these houses and just to get people to open the door and be able to, you know, arrest and, and deport them. Wow. I yeah. had no idea that happened. That is, that's like a human rights violate. Like, that's totally. terrible. I mean, like, that. that's, I learned that when I was here in Michigan, just speaking to community. But, I mean, that's what kind of like, you know what, like, what, what, if I move to Michigan, what can I do? And so, like, from the very beginning, like, I began just talking to meeting people and seeing what would be the best way that, like, to use my skill set as a documentary filmmaker in the community. And so, luckily, I, you know, was it two years, three years later, like, I finally met, I think, the right group, which is my co-founders, uh, Michelle Jokish-Polo and Elizabeth uh, Juilliard. Um, and I think uh, the three of us each have our own very, like, really good skill sets. Like, Michelle and I are both bilingual. 
Michelle's an NPR reporter, um, I mean, award-winning NPR reporter. I'm like, I'm, how much better do you get like that, you know, like NPR? Yeah, that's, <laughs> like that's the top that. of the list. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so that's pretty awesome that I get to call her a co-founder. And so she really kind of helps buckle down my video stories and kind of see it from that journalism perspective. Uh, and then Elizabeth's just an amazing writer and copy editor. Um, and then I bring the video aspect and in my experience of working at Fox, at Super Deluxe, at... Uh, PBS. So we each have like our strength that kind of really helps candor um, do what we're doing, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you just told me this uh, off camera, but um, the thing about candor uh, is actually a word that is the same meaning in both languages. I think that that's, that's right. incredible. It took a while to find one, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I, and I it's mean, something that it fits so well with what you're doing, too. It was like it was meant to be, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if uh, you've seen our trailer for a documentary, but, like, I really wanted to ha hammer that point of being candid. And, like, the first question we asked this lawyer from the ACLU, the first question we asked her was, how fucked up is this situation? I saw that in the trailer, <laughs> yeah. She's just like, well. <laughs> just like. <laughs> no, but, yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, it was just kind of, it was me, like, a branding kind of thing, too, is, like, I mean, there's, there's, there's situations in life, especially here in unfortunately Michigan, where that's the best word really that that kind of describes it. I mean, like uh, I don't know how what other word could describe it better. You know, to be uh, give deportation orders to uh, a marine that was born here in Grand Rapids and he had his passport in his pocket. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is probably a good time to actually switch over to the talk of the documentary. Um... But before we do that, um, yeah. with this year specifically with COVID, um, how has Candor like grown? Like you guys started, I'm sorry, you said three years ago you started? No, three years. When I moved here, I knew I wanted to start something like Candor. Okay, okay. So I um, actually, I think it's been over it's been over a year. I'm, it's when I met, um, started talking with Michelle Yokish Polo. And she started talking with Elizabeth. And like the three of us started having coffee and just kind of started brainstorming this idea of, of candor media. So, hit my mic, I'm sorry. So, um, so we ideally we did not want to start with a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, Elizabeth really pushed us and I'm glad she did because it's definitely a need in our community, you know. We, one of the reasons also... I wanted to start something like Candor because I felt like community, especially black and brown communities here in West Michigan, when it comes to the news, like don't aren't represented. Um, the 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 narrative is always the cops. Like for example, like whenever um, there's marches on the street, whether it be Black Lives Matter or or Cosecha events here, or immigrant rights marches, the narrative in the news is always about how police kept it safe. No one was sure police did their yeah. job and everything's wow. great. But like, you know, a lot of times the, the message of the march it gets it's it's gone. It's it's no it's no longer about what why why are we on the street? Why why are people actually angry enough or upset about to go on the street and uh, you know and march? And so that's what I really wanted Candor to do is give a voice to to the community, you know, not really about politicians like we got enough of that everywhere. You know, there's plenty of CNN plenty of local media here that will give you quotes from Republican or Democrat um, leadership. We want our, our job is to get the community voice here and how, how does this affect community and how does community feel about it?
Yeah. And I, I think that that's honestly really indicative of a lot of the problems here in America. Like we're a very divided country. I'm not going to say now more than ever, because honestly, I think we always have been divided. And I think a big part of that is it's just lack of exposure. A lot of the people who get their information, it's from these news sources that are always a through like the white lens, but also mm -hmm. through like the lens of like law and order. So like the most important thing is that everything was just, it's not about actually talking about the things that the people are concerned about. It's about creating the narrative of safety and reinforcing yeah. the safety mm -hmm. narrative. So, I mean, I think what you're doing, it has implications that reach out into like the larger, larger perspective of how we unite, you know, and I think that this kind of grassroots um, from the bottom on up, I think is like the new approach to media. You know, I, I think you're Absolutely. really on the forefront. I hope so because, you know, like, and I, and I don't, I mean, I have big ideas for Candor and like would love to like, I kind of, like my dream, the best description I want like Candor to eventually become is to kind of be like a vice media, but locally, you know, like with that kind of um, uh, storytelling, you know, just kind of raw. Maybe yeah. not as, you know, I know Vice gets a lot of rap about like, you know, the people on camera, they feel very, what's the, I don't know what the word is. Like people get, like there's, they, they, like the person in front of the camera just wants to be in front of the camera, like wants to be in danger and wants yeah. to like give that oh. look. But, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I think what they do is actually pretty darn good um, journalism, I think. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, and I kind of want to like model our um, candor after that. But locally, you know, like those type of stories, that kind of access and storytelling locally. And yeah. I think like if we take that approach, you know, in every city, then and I think we then we can really start getting, you know, our hear our hear our community stories yeah. instead of like you just said, like that law and order, like, everything's safe, don't worry. Yeah. The police are taking care of it. We got it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think a big thing is like focusing on the stories of people is something that a lot of modern journalism really doesn't do. Um, it's always like nestled within like a larger framework. But like when you get like on the ground and you start looking at individual occurrences, you start to get like a much better picture of how these things play out. You know, it's just it's right there in the trenches, so to speak. And yeah. I mean, people understand life through stories like we mm -hmm. live our lives. We project the future events based on the stories that we're told so when we have stories of the truth of what's happening we have better predictors in how to respond and um like acclimate to it you know so right. um, i think like vice is a is a great um great benchmark to try and move towards and i see a lot of parallels like i love how the founder i don't want to butcher his name so i'm going to read it <laughs> Uh, but I think like our their their story is very similar to ours. Like, they started out as a bilingual magazine in Montreal, like a French English. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. They started a, like a bilingual um, magazine in Montreal, French and English, and they they like eventually moved to New York, where they you know they they got a little bit bigger. They got bought, they, and then. I mean, I'm simplifying their story. I mean, yeah, of course, I definitely, of course. <laughs> I'm definitely recommend like listening to like their "How I Built This" podcast story because it's really good. Uh, but no, I really, uh, and uh, he's a he's an immigrant. He's a son of immigrants too. I think his parents were Pakistan. So like, I really definitely am inspired by like the the one of the founders of Vice, and I like I see a lot of parallels, and I definitely am using a lot of 
their lessons in candor. Yeah. As they much as they can part-time after a full-time and in a pandemic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's how a lot of, like, passion projects start is, you know, it's usually like a side thing until it starts to get enough traction and attention, and then you can slowly invest your energy into it. Um, I like, I, I really appreciate, like, the bilingual approach because I also feel... Um, why there's so much oftentimes disconnect in communities is like we are telling different stories, even sometimes yeah. about the same events. So having the bilingual mm -hmm. approach, it pulls both communities' attention towards one fixed point, and mm -hmm. that's where like the meeting of the minds is, and now we can create a story together, you yep. know? So like you're being a bridge between these two, honestly, like pretty similar, like the value systems are pretty similar, you know? It should be an easy thing to bridge. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, hard, the, the hard part, though, is it is a lot more work. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's literally, I mean, translating isn't as easy as going to Google and copy-paste, you know. Uh, I, I call it transcreating because, because I, I learned this, I did this mistake. The, one of the first things I learned about translating is when I was working at Fox Sports, one of the first jobs I did was uh, working in honor promotions. And literally, I, I worked on the Fox um, Deportes side but there I had people from Mexico all the way to Argentina and the Spanish in each individual country is so different, you know, like you say one word in one country, it means a bad word in the other. Like I remember very, <laughs> I remember very vividly like a, a Cuban coworker of mine, she would always say, um, hey, coger eso. And coger in, in, in Mexican Spanish means to fuck, but coger in, in Cuban Spanish means to pick up. <laughs> I mean, I guess fucking kind of like picking up, maybe. I don't know. I don't know but so we would always joke around. And she was like, "Hey, go get esa, like go pick her up," and like, and like, whoa, <laughs> it's lunchtime, Nora. Yeah, it's lunchtime. Yeah. She's like, I oh, like her, Mexican. but not like that. Yeah, not like that. Well, that's fun. Yeah. So on the on the nature of storytelling, I think um, your is this probably your biggest project coming up, uh, Citizen? Yeah. Yeah. Two I, years. Two wow. years, man. I've been working on this for two years. Oh, my God. I looked at the trailer. Um, I'm, the listeners will already have somewhat of an idea based on the intro, but we're going to get into it. But um, it, whoever's listening, if you haven't looked at the trailer yet, like, seriously, give it a look. Because I, I imagine that you did the brunt of that. All of it. It's amazing. Like, I like, I want to watch this so bad now, and I really want to see this come to fruition. I mean, everything from the shots, the music, like, the cuts, like... It's a really well put together piece of film. I mean, just from this right now, you know. So outside of the filmmaking element, um, let's start talking about this. What sure. what happened? What it inspired you to take this story on, and what exactly is the story? Yeah, I mean, what, how I started um, filming this documentary is I, I was actually following a different story here locally. So in 2018, um, when I. I Maybe you remember, maybe a lot of listeners remember. A lot of people, we started discovering that there was a, a lot of family separation happening at the border. Um, so, you know, Border Patrol was separating kids from their family. The kids were being put in cages. So there was all this, you know, anger and outrage, rightfully so. But especially here locally, because uh, another uh, a local journalist, Jeff Smith, um, I don't know if you guys should check out his site called Grid. There's a lot of independent journalism. Yeah, um, G-R-I-D. Mm-hmm. Okay. G-R-I. I got to look that up. I'll verify that. Grid. And I'll, I'll have that in the, uh, yeah. the, the bio, Definitely. too. So. He discovered, because uh, 
I believe a Kent County commissioner let him know that they renewed a con the county renewed a contract with ICE. So essentially, the county Kent County had a contract that would that said that they would hold people for ICE for an additional seventy two hours, whether they're guilty or not, but just under ICE suspicion or if um, ICE would ask Kent County, "Can you please hold this person for this?" Well, we find out if they're legal or not. Didn't matter if they were committed a crime or not. Then maybe they got pulled over for having a driver's license or not having a driver's license or they got pulled over for not, for a speeding ticket. Whatever reason they're in there, ICE would ask Kent County, please hold them for an additional 72 hours. Meanwhile, while that's happening, so ICE would then reimburse them like 72 bucks a night for the bed. So we found out about this contract. By we, I meant like um, the group I work with, Movimiento Cosecha. I'm a volunteer organizer with them. And so like we're like outraged because, it, you know, a lot of people are focused on the border family separation, but a lot of family separation happens here in Michigan because of a driver's license. Because unfortunately, undocumented immigrants do not have access to our driver's license because that right was taken away 10 years ago. And I can go down that story, but it's a completely different story. Um, so find out about this, um, this contract with ICE. Um, we're pretty much saying like this is gonna cause racial profiling. Like you're, you're gonna, people are gonna get locked. Essentially, incentivizes racial profiling this yeah. contract because now the county gets paid to hold people for ICE, whether they're guilty or not. Fast forward. This was June 2018. Fast forward. To November 2018, Thanksgiving, uh, Lance Corporal Homer Ramos Gomez um, gets arrested for trespassing the day before Thanksgiving. In his possession was his driver's license, his military ID, his Michigan real ID with a star on it that says he's a you know legal here in the United States. He was arrested for trespassing at the Spectrum Butterworth Hospital. Nothing happens that same night. Captain Kurt Van de Croy of the Grand Rapids Police Department, while he was off duty, saw his face on a local news channel, saw his mugshot, and decided to reach out to his ICE contact. He reached out in an email and said, can you check his status? And he sends him all the arrest reports. This is all from evidence discovered by the ACLU of Michigan. Fast forward. <clears throat> Not the, the day after Thanksgiving, ICE goes and interviews um, Helmer Ramos Gomez. I believe it was a five-minute interview, like in interrogation. And after the interrogation, they gave him deportation orders. What? The front. Yep. Wow. I, there's so much to unpack here. Yes. There's like... so there's there's it's that's that's why like I feel like I. I so when I learned about that, I was like, well, this contract documentary is kind of done and I kind of have to follow this story. So that's where I, I just ran with it and I've been running with it for the last two years. And it's still going. I mean, like, that's, that's the unfortunate thing is, you know, um, ICE, this is not the first time that ICE has done this. You know, the, you know it's, Hilmer's case is egregious because, you know, he had his passport in his pocket he was a marine 
He was born here in Grand Rapids. Um, but this is not the first time ICE has arrested citizens or has deported citizens. And it's really hard to get all of that information from ICE because they don't give out that, that information. You have to sue ICE to get that information. That's a lawsuit you you might not win because it's you know a federal organization. Right. Yeah. Luckily, though, the ACLU is suing ICE currently um, on behalf of Hilmer and another law firm, Levy and Levy. They're they are suing to get that information. They okay. they want to get that evidence because there there is no way that if Hilmer's last name was not Gomez or Ramos or was or if he wasn't Brown that he would have been given deportation orders. Yeah. They, and there's evidence that they knew he was a citizen. Yeah. And despite that, they still try to deport him. So what's Hilmer's current status? Um, is he... Hil where, yeah, where is he at? What's happening? Hilmer's working. He's doing... Um, he's going by day by day. But I, I can only imagine... I don't want to speak for him. Um, but... I can't imagine, like, how he must felt. About, like, I mean, can you imagine just the PTSD of yeah. going to war? I mean, he, he was in Afghanistan. And then the PTSD of being almost deported by your own country. That you just fought for and got the that PTSD you just fought from for? the war. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, it just, it just, it just blows my mind. Because, like, uh, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, because I'm one of those citizens that have been, like, not nearly deported, but like I had a horrible nightmare experience at the border a couple of years back, where my wife and I were where we flew into Toronto and we wanted to go to Buffalo for a wedding, so we drove from Toronto to Buffalo, and when we got to the border, they uh, they scanned my passport and they asked me, "Sir, can you please get out of the car? Put your put your keys on the dashboard. Like, what's everything all right? Like." Please step out of the car. And then I'll step out of the car. Four of the biggest, like, patrol, border patrol agents I've ever seen in my life come with machine guns and then escort me, like, El Chapel style into a, a glass window. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of, like, it didn't really hit me until, like, I went to, like, the glass shield. But, like, it's, it was kind of embarrassing. It's very embarrassing, you know. It makes, looks you, makes you feel like... You're a criminal, like you did something bad. So, like, I mean, that 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 event has kind of shaped me. The reason why I'm in this fight, but I, I can't imagine what Hilmer felt. You know, like I got away with it. He, that's easy. Like you should, if if you read the books and see hear the stories from these other citizens, like that was nothing compared to what they did to Hilmer and what they've done to other like immigrants and other Latinx citizens of color. Yeah. And that's like the the first stage of it is like that feeling of like shame, I guess that comes with it. Yeah. Like it, it's completely out of your control, and it immediately has this power differential aspect that kind of like, as soon as you're categorized as like a criminal, it's almost like a subhuman kind of thing. Yeah. It gives them this like ability to like, we're gonna do with you what we will because you're. Mm -hmm. you know, not an autonomous citizen now. And it's like, even if you're passed for like, okay, yeah, sorry, go on with your day. Like that settles into your muscles. That settles into your memory. Oh, your, it, it changes the way you interact with society. And this is happening to hundreds of thousands of millions of people, you know? Yeah. 
on a daily basis, you know, like that's, that's, and, and I think you summed it up perfectly, like that, that kind of feeling of shame that, you know, you don't, you don't feel it right away, but like afterwards, it just kind of, it's kind of like, it's traumatic, you know, it kind of yeah. doesn't really leave you, it doesn't, yeah. yeah. And the fact that we're hearing all these stories, even if it's something that's never happened to you, but you find yourself to be in one of these, a member of one of these communities, like that trauma is shared between everybody, right. you know, like it, what happened, happens to one person is happening to everybody. And, you know, like where I'm sitting, not in like a marginalized community, you know, I, I do have this sensation of kind of like, I, I know I don't have air quote as much to worry about, but at the same time, it's like, it it's really upsetting, <laughs> you know, that we live in this country that everybody pats ourselves on the back for but it's kind of a vicious place you know yeah. <laughs> it's it is I, i'm laughing but because i guess i can't like it's my i guess my way of coping with it but that's I, it's, yeah it's hard it's it's be really this is and it's sad for me to even say it's like it'd be hard for me to like wave the flag yeah it'd be really hard for me to, it's yeah. really hard for me to wave the flag yeah the u.s flag and and i don't think i never but just maybe just because I learned how much we've done and you're going down a dark road here. Like, <laughs> no, but, that's, I mean, this is the reality of things, you know? Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I think for the sake of like the podcast, I mean, we focus on wellness and like positivity, yes. <laughs> but, positive. but I mean, at the same time, like it, it's not at the expense of the negative. Like we have to be able to like have these talks about the reality of things is otherwise the positivity is bolstered up by, it, it's cheap it's tricks, real. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just we, putting, um, what's the word? There's a good saying for this, and I, I can't think of it, but someone said, someone had some good words for, it, yeah. for what you just said. Yeah. It's just um, a bypassing, you know, and it's like whatever good feeling you have is it's hollow, you know? If you're not able to, like, sit with the reality of, like, the circumstance you're in, you know, it's we have to be able to move with this, you know, because this does affect us all, you know? I mean... Um, like I was saying, how about like the entire community becomes affected when we hear stories like this? Like, what does that do over generations? You know, like that has a physiological effect that gets carried down, like generational trauma. And it's like so much of this vibrant community potentially doesn't have the same levels of expression and interaction and available opportunity. And it's like, I want to celebrate this. You know, I, I want to be interacting and like having us all meld, you know, and it's like, if there's mass trauma in, in a community, then it it impacts everybody, you know? I'll give you a good example of like where this immediate, like immediate good wellness example of how like even just the recent election, like the this past week, I'm not the biggest Biden fan, but just knowing that Trump is on his way out and the trauma that he has done to me and to people like me, I mean, from the very beginning, like calling people like me and my family rapists and racists and criminals, and like knowing that there's a president there, of like it weighs on your mind every day. That like, holy shit, this there's there's a president. The president of the United States thinks I'm subhuman, and like the week after the election, dude, I swear I've never been so productive in like four years. Like I was like just knowing that this asshole is leaving here. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully, like January 20th, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Um, he, I, it, the weight on my mental health, it was amazing. I was like yeah. night and day at home, not triggered. I wasn't 
like I was I wasn't quick to get angry. I I, I was snappy with coworkers. I was snappy with my wife. But that but like you like you said this uh, this emotion that well being of there's a cl there's clear like a trauma when when uh, when leaders think certain groups or treat certain groups a different way. You know. Yeah. And, like and I, I and I just. I'm glad I was able to at least acknowledge and realize, like, wow, like, why do I feel so happy this week? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. like, oh, I know. I know it's a big difference. There's a big difference. There's a big, is, is this guy is not going to be president anymore. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. we can start to, like, heal. Like, it, it didn't solve all our problems, but it definitely was, like, a, a weight off, a physical, like, emotional and um, weight off my shoulders. Yeah. I think the thing about the presidency too is that the thing that like gets me and like I'm also just as happy that I feel like this huge collective sigh of relief was shared right. between most of the country. But like the thing about the presidency is that it represents half of mm -hmm. the country. So like the people that were okay, I feel like there are uh, a segment of Trump, Trump supporters who aren't as about his like social prerogatives, but the fact that it wasn't a deal breaker, I think right. is where the problem is. It's that gray yeah. area. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wonder how we can go forward. I think like things like candor media are going to be the things that help us. I think m people vote, voted for him out of ignorance, honestly. And I feel like if they heard these stories and had more interactions with the people that he essentially is saying are subhuman. I, I really think that that's how we go forward is through the art, you know, and that's what the documentary is. I think, I think that the documentary too has a really good opportunity to reach, you know, both you know, liberal, Democrat, whatever you want to say, yeah. because it's like you said, like, the story is like what helps us, you know, tell truths. Yeah. And like, and here's a guy, you know, like, I mean, you, who's a Marine, an American, by any means of like, you know, we typically celebrate these people because of what they do and what their job as a Marine and their sacrifice. But yet, you know, there's this great quote by, um, this author named Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia, and he says America has um, America's favorite illegal immigrant is Superman. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a he's a legal alien. You know, he comes here from a different planet, and we love him. Why? Because he's Superman. Because he's perfect. You know. And so, unfortunately, every other undocumented immigrant has to live to that Superman standard. Yeah. And so, and and it, and it kind of puts every other immigrant in a tough spot, you know, like, you know, people forget that undocumented immigrants are human beings just like every one of us. Yeah. We're all human beings who aren't perfect. And yeah. so I, I feel like, I forgot why I was going with that, but. <laughs> I mean, I think that was <laughs> succinct in itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, don't, I, I don't know where to go. Sorry. Awkward no, I mean, I think like. segment. Yeah, I think like illegal aliens are human is like that's a complete sentence, and the fact that we felt the need to like even extrapolate oh, I more is I think that's like indicative of <laughs> the thing, and I I feel like a big part of a lot of people's ignorance. I mean, it's the media, man. <laughs> you know, and I'm glad I have a, a filmmaker, documentarian, journalist with me right now because it's like, honestly, I think. 80% of this country's problems are propagated by the media and the fact that 
even when we're being inclusive and representative, it's under the framework of like, look how inclusive and representative we are rather right. than like to actually give a genuine, authentic, right. heartfelt vo- like opportunity Try for it, people yeah. to speak, you know? Absolutely. It's... I think you, uh, and I feel like, you know, as a media person, I, I feel a sense of responsibility to, you know, not add to that. Like I, I really conflicted myself and just like where candor you know where, where do we where is our platform going to live like i want I, I don't want to be on facebook i like yeah. I, I i don't i i i feel just obligated to be there because you know people are on there and our audience is on there but i like we i feel like they just become echo chambers to yeah yeah to our our own voice you know and, and i feel yeah. like there's no real dialogue there's no real interaction happening there. You know, it's yeah. just, and, and it, <laughs> there's this great quote from the Cobra Kai series on Netflix. Oh, I, I loved guess. it. I loved Did it. Did you see it? Yeah, it's so good. Wow. I fucking love that show. And there's this great quote by, by Johnny, I don't forget his last name, but the main character. And like uh, this young girl goes into Cobra Kai and was explaining to the being bullied online. And he goes like, wait, they're not, they're not telling it to your face? They're like doing it from their home. Well, excuse me, but the quote was like, he says like, what a bunch of pussies. And yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, it kind of is. Like, like let's get yeah. the courage to like get to know each other, you know? Yeah. I also like that he wasn't like, oh, they shouldn't be bullying you. It was more of a matter of like, they should yeah. bully you to your face. <laughs> yes. Like yeah. get off the computer and like talk to someone yeah. and have a real like genuine human conversation. Like, And I really love that show because I feel like that's a lot of the lessons of that that of of you know that 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 series is like talk to someone get to know yeah. them and don't judge them like based on what you yeah. what you see on the outside right um so i i did want to actually end up moving into because we started to talk about trump sure. a little bit but before we do i had one question is that contract with kent county and ice is that still active no thankfully okay Whew. so what so that that's one of the great things and i i hope I'm gonna just push pause on my recorder, or else it's gonna it's gonna mess up the file. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we just took a little bit of a pause there. Um, so the question that I was just asking you was: Is Kent County's contract with ICE still active, or what happened with that? No, it's not active. Um, and and that's I give a hands down to the the work the community did, Movimiento Cosecha, Grand Rapids response to ICE. Uh, I mean, there are so many people to credit for that win. And really, like, since that June 2018 and an initial, I mean, we went to the Kent County Commission, um, uh, like, an office and meetings monthly and pretty much, you know, uh, protested their meetings. I mean, they've never... They used to be probably they probably miss us because they're 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 boring. I mean, have yeah. you ever been to one of these? They're like long and just yeah. boring and dry materials and stuff. But I mean, but like when uh, after that meeting, we went every month, every month, and then after the Hilmer Ramos Gomez arrest, because Hilmer was in Kent County, and so this was exactly what we said was going to happen. Says you're gonna have this. You're gonna have eventually racial profiling, and something bad's gonna happen. And look what happened. Hilmer got arrested. That, um, that contract was brought up by sh- former sheriff Larry Stelma. He retired, 
coincidentally, right after that arrest of Hilmar Ramos Gomez. Oh. Yeah, what a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, and appointed uh, Sheriff Michelle Joy Young. Uh, thankfully, and uh, she recognized the, you know, the problems of this contract um, and ended it, or no longer honored it. And um, so the new policy for Kent County is like, they will no longer hold anyone for ICE until ICE provides uh, a warrant signed by a judge or magistrate, like any like any other case. I mean, if if you're so, what was essentially happening? Like um, undocumented immigrants were not giving their due process. You know, they're they're essentially ICE was handing these up called detainers, which aren't warrants. They're not any legal. They're just administrative detainers. They're not signed by any judge or or magistrate, they're not a warrant. And essentially, depending on the sheriff's office or county, and they were, they would listen to them. Um, and so the, thankfully, the sheriff, who was just re recently won re-election, um, Michelle Joy, and she, hopefully she still honors that yeah. after being re-elected. But, but yeah, she, she's, um, she no longer honored that contract and no longer um, listened to ICE detainers which is a, a big problem on its own. We can talk about ICE detainers for, for hours. Its own episode. Um, yeah, that's an episode on its own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the contract's over. Thankfully, she she wow. did not renew the contract. That's incredible. Are these contracts nationwide? Are they essentially yes. every country? That's They're really disheartening. It's really it's kind of where like um, it's it's hard to, you know, ICE is one arm of Department of Homeland Security, but. Like the way they're able to have such a large reach is because they essentially deputize local police into becoming immigration officers. So ICE will have these contracts throughout the nation at different levels. So like pick your pick your flavor of how you how shady you want to be with us. You know, luckily Kent County had like the I would say like the mild um, contract. I mean, we just hold them. But there's some other contracts where essentially deputize sheriff's off officers into becoming immigration agents. Like, they pull over and, like, they call immigration right there and then. And Arizona was famous of the famous, um, infamous sheriff, um, Joe Apayo, I forgot, but he was pardoned by Trump um, for his, essentially his policies were racial profiling and just arresting people, citizens or whatever, for being brown. If you're suspected of being illegal, you're going to be pulled over. <laughs> that, was a, that was a rule in Arizona. So, like, it was like a joke, like, when in California, like, to be careful when you drive through Arizona going to New Mexico because you might get deported. <laughs> and it was That's actually, actually true. Terrible but, like, functional joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's incredible. I mean, but... So, like, depending on, like, uh, your, your local officials, uh, it, like, the, the degree at which they work with ICE varies. And thankfully, locally, at least for now, the sheriff has decided to, uh, you know, follow the rule of law and the Constitution and give people their due process. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, we were able to do that, but it's just disheartening that we even, like, had to do that. You oh, yeah. Know? So there's still a lot of work. I mean, there's still people getting, like, un the unfortunate part, family separation still happens every day, you know. And that's why I think something as simple as a driver's license would, would, would change that. You know, a, a driver's license, you know, it's not a passport. It's not, it's, 
it's, it lets you drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's so important, like in community, because you know, with a without a driver's license, you can't open a bank account. Right. You can't, you know, you can't legally, you can't get insurance for your car, so yeah. you can't drive safely. It yeah. protects you and me on the road. Um. So that, but like, uh, even like just having a driver's license would just give people that dignity and respect to be able to just go to work, you know, and be able to provide for us, you know, yeah. like we call these people essential, but then we also call them illegal at the same yeah. time, you know, so it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's crazy. The very idea of an illegal human is just such a wild concept. Like, I feel like the best kind of system and like if America was really operating as it's like morals intended, it would be like, Oh, you're not documented? Like, let's get you documented. Yeah, come on down. Let's, like, fill out some paperwork. Like, we used you're to do here. that. When did that change? Well, he, we, there was this thing called the registry, and you, people can fact check me, and, you know, probably I'm not, I'm not a, I don't know, data and fact numbers exact, but, but we used to do that since 1929. We had a registry that essentially, like, we would update periodically because, I mean, people, this is a nation of immigrants. This nation was built on immigrants. We've been having immigrants coming here from since the 1700s. And, you know, and some of us have been here before that, <laughs> Native, yeah. our Native American brothers and sisters. Right. Right. And so, but we've had a registry that would essentially like, all right, if every couple of years, if you came in from this state to this state, all right, we're going to give you residency. You can pay taxes. Um it would take like 10 years. So it was like a long process, sometimes more, I think, where we'd update this. In 1986, we, 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 instead of doing this registry, we did this thing called um, amnesty. They called it, it was like a provision in this other act, the IRCA. I have it here. I mean, I re definitely recommend reading the book Illegal by um, uh, Elizabeth Cohen. I think she does a great job of kind of explaining that history of like how we got here from going, going to this, having this like system that actually worked that both Republicans and Democrats like um, agreed with to now having this like we have to get these criminals and rapists out of here you know? yeah. and yeah 1986 which my parents were a part of called that thing called this amnesty that if you if you came to the country from 1982 I believe or 1986 you can apply to residency essentially like you got a um, you were allowed to get residency and we haven't had one since and so we have this backlog of 30, what is 30, wait, I'm 35, so 35 year backlog of people have, um, have no really legal way to become um, a functioning you know, member of society with, but the, the, the amazing part is like even though they, they don't have that easier route to becoming here legally, people still pay their taxes. You know, undocumented immigrants pay more taxes than the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, um, and so, like, yeah, like, it really sucks that we had this system, but it's been really just politicized. I think, if I'm, if my number's right, I think, it's like, in the mid-'80s, this, this whole, like, illegal talk really started happening. It really started building up by... By lobbyists of uh, the Republican Party, mostly um, have the name. I was just reading it. Uh, like this, this, this Republican lobby groups formed this thing called the Center for Immigration Studies. So it sounds really like, you know, 
educational and uh, uh, what's the word? Sounds like formal. scholar, very yeah. scholar, you know, yeah. center of immigration studies. But like it's really been, it just has that label. But they've just come out with like twisted statistics to just kind of try to manipulate their narrative of why certain immigration is bad and the, the numbers are all over the place but really just trying to create this narrative of how illegal immigration is taking over our country and these illegals but that's really where like in the in the mid 80s we start seeing this huge campaign to calling people illegals that's really where like this whole illegal thing started yeah. to really happen yeah. was that the um uh the reagan era or is that before reagan it was reagan but it, it, it has roots before i mean like yeah. america first was first said by like i think back in the 1920s oh wow uh, by uh, the hoover yeah oh. in the 1920s i don't know if people know we we deported over a million citizens 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 documented citizens yes but the unfortunate thing like the thing is like poor people People without money don't have the luxury of being able to afford documents. You know, like even today, yeah. like m most Americans don't have a passport. Yeah, I don't. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't, like, if you didn't have need to travel, you don't have a passport. Yeah. So like, that's already another financial burden on like people of color or Latinos. Like, I I walk around with my passport. To be honest, I have it in my pocket, um, yeah. out of fear, <laughs> really more. Just, just in case, but yeah. as we learn, it sometimes doesn't even that doesn't help. But yeah, in the 1920s, it was called they, they branded it as repatriations. Essentially, essentially what that meant, um, they were saying that Mexicans, specifically Mexicans, were stealing jobs from uh, a post like um, depression thing. So there was like the United States going through a Great Depression. They're trying to just scapegoat and blame Mexicans. And yeah. so there was this big campaign from the 1920s to, to, to repatriate um, Mexicans and, and Mexican-Americans. Um, and there's plenty of books out there about it. But and in, in the 1950s, we did another horrible mass deportation called Operation Wetback. I mean, that literally was the Jeez. name of it. And oh that was under the Eisenhower. That was under the Eisenhower administration. Where we deported over a million people, and I'm not sure how many citizens were deported uh, in that, but a lot. Uh, um, but I know that there's books and stats about the 1920s of, of how many uh, citizens we like we yeah. we've deported from this country. Citizens, not just not, not right. illegal immigrants. Citizens. It just creates like really weird conditions for someone who may be here and who's undocumented, like. We as a society, we like shame like undocumented folks, but at the same time, we don't offer them any legal way to get that documentation without the potential of deportation. Right. So it's like, regardless of why someone finds themselves here, which is frankly their damn business and nobody else's, right. oftentimes I know um, from just what I've heard, like a lot of people are fleeing violence or they're looking for better opportunities for their family. And it's like very human, natural reasons Thanks. to want to, like, it's not this like, there, there's no insidious nature to that. It's just something that literally any of us would do, you right. know. And it's like now that they find themselves here, they don't have. I just feel like that in this day and age, with the technological advances we have, the fact that there is no easier way. I just feel like that it's a cop out. I feel like it's a cop is out. The, is the system designed like is this specific? 
It is. I, I mean, I, I mean, in my opinion, I feel like the the system's working exactly as intended. Yeah. And unfortunately, like since, the, and we've seen this with the last presidency, with with Donald Trump, uh, and even with the Obama administration. I mean, the, the Obama people forget that the the Obama administration deported three million people. Yeah. I think they call and him it, like the king of deportation. Like he's got uh, like a deport, title. Dep deporter in chief. That's what it is. Yep. Yep. Deporter Oof, in chief. I mean. Okay. So we have to be very careful, like, I mean, uh, you can almost even, like, pr a lot of this, uh, the mess we're in is because of President Clinton in 1994. Uh, and so, like, it's, it's really, that's why it's, it pains a lot of us there who are in the movement to, like, how we always put all our hope into these presidential candidates to do something. But really, like, like ending the contract, we know that, we can do real change, but we have to do it. You know, we have to, we have to, it, it starts locally. Like we can, you know, a lot of people don't find that sexy or like, oh, or like are big, but like if everyone did change locally, like then we can get national change. You know, like if everyone showed up at the commission um, meetings locally, then, then like, then we start seeing like more change nationally. Yeah. Instead of like trying to get like a, a messiah savior to save our our right. like Biden ain't gonna fix shit like yeah. it's up to us to hold them accountable you know and i think i'm glad that i'm seeing in circles that yes we're happy trump is gone is, is on his way out but we're 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 just we're excited to protest them yeah <laughs> to protest someone that that doesn't think we're rapists and criminals and right and so we're uh, that's one thing that I'm very excited about. It's just that I, I feel like people see it's going to be hard, but I think people know it's going to be hard, and I, and I feel like people are ready to like dive into the work. Yeah, I think there's something about the local side of things that I mean, I, I really want to like advocate that a lot on this show as the years go on, because like that really is where a lot of the change is. I mean, you see like with cannabis legalization now that that's mm -hmm. sweeping the states. That started local. That was a local initiative. Uh, I think it was Colorado and Washington were the first major players. And now it's like over half the country is legal. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I definitely think like getting involved in that way is super crucial. And having, I think like art is the way that like gets people to want to get involved. Because like you said, it's not sexy. It's a lot of work. But if you can communicate these things in a way that is sexy, that yeah. like makes people feel, then like... You know, I, I think the artists are definitely on the front lines as well, and I think it's important that they are. Um, so I think you said a really bad point. I think because I, 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 I consider myself very lucky to be able to be part of these um, volunteer with these organizations or, not, or these movements. I don't want to call them orgs. I'm going to call them movements because um, you know, it, it, one of our our principles is like we can get everything everything that we need is in the community yeah. and so like we like everyone in our movement has a different job me what i volunteer is that documentary filmmaking my video so i try to tell the stories of our community as much as i can uh, with candor now you know that's a lot harder to do but definitely those like these last three years i tried my best to like volunteer my uh, my skill as much as I can to the movement, you know, and like you said, tell those stories so people can feel and get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this kind of feels like a, a natural bookend and I don't really want to take up too much of your evening. I know we did have a few other things. Um, 
But I'm just going to give you the floor right now. And um, I know you have a new Kickstarter that's coming out for Indiegogo. said documentary. Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> the neighbor. That's all right. So um, this episode is releasing on Wednesday, and I think your Indiegogo is starting tomorrow, right? Tomorrow as in Thursday. Uh, if if this episode is coming on Wednesday, it's coming out Wednesday. No, the 25th. Next oh, Thursday is nice. Thanksgiving. Oh, shoot. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, what are the goals? What are um, Where are you at with production? What, um, what would you like people so, to know about that initiative? Yeah, so one of the fortunate things now is um, we're going to be able to get to know Hilmer Ramos Gomez a little bit. That's one of that's been one of my main hesitations to releasing any of the previous footage, is because I feel like it's important to hear his side of the story. And so with this Indiegogo, hopefully I'll be able to not only like people we haven't heard from him, no one's heard from him. So this is this is huge. Like uh, yeah. he hasn't done any interviews in two years. So we're fortunate enough that he is um, trusting us with telling his story. And I think I definitely want to honor that. So uh, one, one of the things I'm learning is uh, doing a feature film is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it, takes, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, I've, uh, it's kind of been a blessing and a curse to be able to work with so um, low-budget stuff, but also like definitely learn experience when when you want to get stuff to netflix and when you talk to these people that i've had fortunate to pitch this documentary to but we definitely like uh, i've learned a lot in the last few months talking to these network executives that i've had the fortune to pitch to that you know uh your budget needs to go up and you need a um just to get that quality up a little bit more it's not so much like to get the, the money equals quality but mon- money equals time and it gives you yeah. time yeah. gives you time to work on it so, like, really, uh, that's what I'm asking. How hopefully people will be able to, to one, um, contribute, share the story. Hopefully some rich person with a heart will want to donate. That would be the <laughs> miracle thing, you know. But, you know, every little bit counts. And so our goal is you know, we're not trying to fund the whole thing um, for this Indiegogo. We're hoping that we can just get maybe, like, a quarter of it. Which So we're, our goal is going to be about sixty-five grand. Which is ambitious, um, but I think sixty-five thousand could help us really, you know, one pay for any legal fees because it will be uh, pay for me, the director, to work on it full time, which is important. Um, yeah. But really, the goal is to just really help tell the story to a national audience because not this is a story that needs to be told. You know, like we live in a very short news cycle that stories like this don't get the time that they need to be told. Like, I think you mentioned it too, that there's a lot to unpack to the story. There's a lot left to unpack. There's still a lot of things we don't know yeah. about why this happened. How, how does this happen in, in 2020, in 2018, in 2020? Why is this happening still? Yeah, and so, why is this happening all the time? All the time. Um, you know, and, and I, and I, I want to make sure people are, I'm not trying to focus on the whole citizen aspect, but it's just, this Hilmer story shows that it was never about the papers. It was never about calling someone illegal or legal. It was about his, it was about the color of his skin. It was yeah. about his last name. It, yeah. And essentially it was never really about being legal or illegal. It was really about keeping brown people, uh, immigrants from Latinx out of this country. And his story proves it. 
Yeah. Well. Hey, and then you, you can get. Oh, sorry. And then you can find that Indiegogo. Uh, the name of the film is Citizen: The Hilmar Rommel's Gomez Story. And all of that will definitely be in the uh, description as well. Um, I'm going to have to re-listen because there was another thing I wanted to tag. Um, also, Candor Media is also going to be in the description. So I encourage everybody to give it a look because there's some really good journalism coming out of there. Um, every All the content I looked at was really quality. So um, my hat goes off to you. I don't have a hat, but you, you get that. Um, Jose, thank you so much, man. Truly, it has been an honor to get this much of your time and to hear your story. Um, and I wish you literally nothing but success and I will be here on the sidelines cheering you on the entire way. Thanks, Brett. Yeah. Awesome. Have yourself a great night. You too, man. All right, friends, that was the episode. Uh, if you're so inclined, I definitely encourage you to check out Candor Media. It's on Facebook. They got Instagram and Twitter. Uh, they also got their website, Candor Media. All those links are going to be down in the description, as well as checking out the Indiegogo campaign for uh, Citizen, the Hilmer Ramos Gomez story. Uh, I definitely think this is going to be a really amazing project, and I really encourage you to also check out the uh, the trailer there. Um, you can see Jose's work and see why I was so inspired to actually bring him on board and to... Um, help walk us through some of these complicated and just disheartening situations that our country is finding itself in. So we're going to be back next Wednesday at 11 at the same time. Uh, remember, uh, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do for me at this current iteration is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You do need to download iTunes or be using an Apple device, but um, within 10 minutes, you could have given essentially given me a large lump sum of money energetically. That's like the same thing. Like it, every single five-star review helps, and it helps me make a better show. So thank you again for your attention and your time. I love you much. Have a good day.